Hello and welcome to The Last Looks Podcast, a show where we catch up with talented hairstylists and makeup artists in the film and television industry. We'll pick their super creative brains and find out all the good stuff. Join me, your host, Jamie Lee, in finding out what's what in the hair and makeup departments around the world. Now it's time for Kit Corner, where we shine a spotlight on artists who've created products with the film and television industry in mind. Products designed by artists for artists. Hi, Terry. Hi, Jamie. Terry, you are a professional hairstylist, a member of Local 706, and you have launched a product called Germaphobe. So tell me a little about what Germaphobe is and how this journey started for you. Uh, well, Germaphobe is a surface and tool sanitizer that I created with essential oils for us beauty pros and beauty lovers to use on your tools and surfaces to keep them clean and sanitary and germ-free. I've always been passionate about the environment. 15 years ago, I had a children's boutique, eco-green friendly products, and I really kind of went in headfirst and learned about the environmental working group and learned about toxic ingredients in beauty products. So that's always been something I've really been passionate about is reducing our exposure to toxic beauty products. And cleaning products are probably one of the number one abusers of that. So I really wanted to make something beautiful and useful and clean and safe because being beauty professionals, working with people, working with the public, with actors, we really need to keep our environment as sanitized and clean as possible. So what is the best way to use germaphobe? Uh, well, it's really easy. It comes in these glass spray bottles. So there are two ways to clean. You can spray and wipe, and that is sanitizing. If you want to go deeper into disinfecting, you saturate and let it sit for 10 minutes. It's either your combs or your brushes, your tools, your counter, your chair. Uh, let it sit for 10 minutes and that works as a disinfectant. And all of these guidelines I got off the Centers for Disease Control website and I highly encourage you if you are interested in sanitizing and keeping your spaces clean to give that a look as well. So what do you feel makes Germaphobe stand out from other products? I was really excited to learn about thyme oil being antiviral and a lot of other essential oils being antibacterial. So these are things that we often come in contact with doing our job. So I created a blend of six different essential oils along with hydrogen peroxide and alcohol and it's a really awesome blend. It smells really good. I've been getting great feedback from people that love just spraying it in the air because it smells good. <laughs> but uh, it does have the added bonus of being a sanitizer. And it comes in refillable glass bottles, which is another thing I was really passionate about, not dumping out more plastic bottles. We already have so many single-use plastics. Let's leave that to the medical professionals and the essential people that really need to use plastic. You know, I get it, we all have to use plastic at some point, but if I could make one less thing with plastic, that was my goal. That's very cool. And where can we find Germaphobe? 
Yeah, well, right now, Germaphobe is available at Nigel Beauty in North Hollywood, California. It's also available on my website, germs.me, and I offer free shipping and no tax, and that's all the time. If you want to do international shipping, though, I do suggest nigelbeauty.com. That's amazing. Thank you so much, Terry. You're welcome. Thank you so much, Jamie. I appreciate the support. Today, I'm speaking with makeup and hair designer Naomi Don. Naomi is responsible for creating the makeup looks for films such as Zoolander, 1917, Cinderella, The Royal Tenenbaums, and multiple Bond films. Naomi shares her experience training with the BBC, how prepping for 1917 was such a brilliant collaboration with all involved, and how Timothy Dalton brought her into the world of 007. Picture up. Last looks. Rolling. And action. Welcome to the Last Looks podcast, Naomi. Thank you very much. Hey, now I would like you to finish the sentence for me, okay? Right. Once upon a time, there was a girl named Naomi, and when she grew up, she wanted to be... Oh, dear. <laughs> what, a makeup artist? I should desperately. <laughs> oh, well, there you go. That's easy. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> so how did you make that happen? Well, actually... I got hit by a thunderbolt when I was about 17 and mm. I'm wondering what to do on my way to art college about really what did I want to do at the end of that. And I, I got hit by this idea that someone was painting the monsters on Doctor Who. Mm. And so it was that a job? You know, it was, This is a long time ago. This is in the late 70s when mm-hmm. makeup artists were not celebs and they weren't very high profile. And I didn't even know if it was a job at all. So... I just thought someone must be doing that. So my mum rang the BBC and they said, yes, it was a job. And they gave a list of qualifications that you needed. So I sort of did an about turn and I got into the London College of Fashion. I did their three-year course, which was then a sort of sitting guild. It was a sort of craft trade type course okay. in hairdressing, beauty therapy, cosmetic science. It was very, very comprehensive three-year course, which is now wow. a degree course, in fact, because now it's a university. But so and I went there purely because I wanted to get into the BBC. Mm-hmm. So I did the course and I got into the BBC just before I finished the course, they were advertising for the makeup school at the BBC mm. and I applied and I went and begged really I begged everywhere and <laughs> I got in I got into the BBC and there you did another two years training you're a trainee for another two years and you sort of started off washing puffs and sponges and getting cups mm-hmm. of tea for the makeup designers things like that and oh yeah eventually you know you were allowed to touch a face but it took ages and the first face I made up was Neil Kinnock and and then it went from there, really. And and in the end, the BBC Makeup School was the most incredible training. And working at the BBC gave me the experience, which coupled with a three-year course at the London College of Fashion, I was we were all of us so highly trained at that point. We were trained in everything, and really that gave us all the confidence to go out into the world and leave the BBC eventually, become freelance and go out and 
do our stuff. And that's what it was. It was all about the training. That's awesome. So just having that foundation is so amazing. Yeah. And so within the BBC, I'm guessing, well, that's quite a variety of work really, isn't it? Because, I mean, the BBC is putting out all all sorts of shows. Yeah, particularly in those days. Now it's different now because very little is made in-house. But then everything was made in-house. So you were doing period dramas, Shakespeare's, you were doing sitcoms or sketch shows or the news or anything, films. You could have been doing anything, and we did. And so that's how we got so much experience. And in between, when you weren't on a major project, you were standing by. You had to go into work and you had to stand by, and then you could use that time. The designers would come down and say, does anyone want any help with anything? So you could really brush up on anything you needed help with. So you're constantly honing your craft and really improving yourself. You had all these incredible opportunities. And then so it was great, doesn't exist anymore, the BBC no, training. So it's sad. such a shame. It's such a shame. But we were really privileged to have that. And a lot of the big makeup designs, Jenny Shurkor, uh, Francis Hannan, all of that, we all came out of the BBC. That's wonderful. Yeah. So at what point did you feel that it was time to move on? Well, they wouldn't promote me to designer. I'd been there six, seven years, and they wouldn't promote me because they said my personality wasn't very BBC. I was very gregarious, and and I thought, come on, blimey. <laughs> and I didn't think that. It was much more graphic than that. But I better not say. Yeah. <laughs> and at that point, I've been working with Tracy Allman. Oh, cool. On a sketch show, and she said she was she had a very big music career. Then she was going around the world promoting her singles, and she said, "Did I want to go with her and do her hair and makeup?" And I and that was the opportunity I've been waiting for. It was, it was a job that lasted a few months. It gave me a sort of really good start. And I said, yep, and out I was out of that door. And then I went and did all the went all over the place with Tracy. And then she did a film for the BBC. And then the producer of that film asked me to do a feature film. And and on that feature film, I met Timothy Dalton. Oh wow. And I so I did that film. It was a period film called The Doctor and the Devils. And then mm-hmm. I was working with a comic strip, which were Jennifer Saunders and Dawn French and Rick Mail and Ada and Edmondson. Oh, my God. We were, doing, <laughs> <laughs> so we were doing like these comic strip films for Channel 4, and then suddenly this headline broke that Timothy Dalton was the next Bond. And I, I had only done one, one film, and for a joke I said to Jen or someone, I said, God, wouldn't it be great if Tim rang and asked me to be his personal makeup artist on Bond? <laughs> and that night the phone rang and it was the producer saying, could you come in? Tim's requested you to be his makeup artist. Could you come in for an interview? And I nearly passed out. I couldn't believe it. <laughs> That's it very was cool. so out of my realm of what I thought might happen in my career. And I never thought about doing films. I only wanted to do Doctor Who. That was it. <laughs> and, and then I love it. I went for my interview and they offered me a job and I couldn't believe that the Bond is my second film and the BBC wouldn't let me be a designer. So there you go. There you go <laughs> I love how you said it out loud as a joke. <laughs> but I'm sure it was probably only a partial joke. There's somewhere no, inside you that probably thought I, that would be I ne- amazing. No, I never <laughs> no? even thought. I mean, when you do a Bond, it's really the most phenomenal job. It's 
you know, it's a huge job. And you don't think at 20, whatever I was then, and, and I had only done one feature film, you don't think your know, next feature film is going to be a Bond. And mm. so I, I really did say it as a joke, and but somehow it happened. And so I really have Tim Dalton to thank for my career because once you've done a Bond, you're sort of, even though the, the work isn't necessarily the most demanding work, it, sometimes it has been lately, but mm. it's it just sets you in a whole different place. And that really was the beginning of my feature film career. And it's really all down to Tim Dalton. Wow, that's very cool. Yeah. So what was your position? You were... I was his personal makeup artist. Oh, that's very cool. Yeah, and um, I wasn't even allowed to do his hair because then in England, hair and makeup were two separate jobs and they were very, very strict. Ah. So I wasn't allowed to do his hair, so all I had to do was powder his neck, well, make him up, and it was... I mean, it was months of work making up Tim Dalton, and it wasn't very demanding because he was gorgeous. Yeah. And, you know, occasionally he'd get a wound, and that's all I had to do. But after that, the next Bond I did, I I think I chiefed it with Norma okay. Webb. And uh, so it got a bit, and that was more, much more exciting. That's awesome. So how many have you done now? I've done five. And oh, wow. the last one I did was Spectre. Uh, with, awesome. I did the last two with Sam Mendes and Spectre was fantastic I mean doing a Bond is fantastic it's the best best job of all in so many ways you know they're incredible people to work for it's really like a family in, in the real sense and you have a lot of creative freedom and you feel very supported they're really fantastic people to work for that's amazing I wonder how they've managed to keep that kind of I don't know, that that bond feel throughout the years. Do you know what I mean? Just as a bond family, I suppose. it just. Well, keeps... I think it, really it's Barbara Broccoli who took over from her dad when he died okay. and her and her brother, Michael Wilson, really have kept it going and that's how they've maintained it. They have huge respect for their crew and the actors that they employ and the directors they give total freedom to and yet maintaining the sort of franchise, but always letting it change and grow and move with the times. It's really, it's really great. That's awesome. I need to go backwards a little bit because you kind of made my mind melt a little bit when you mentioned all the comedy. Oh, the comic strip, yeah. Oh, my God. (laughs) Did you Um, you ever watch the comic strips? Because you might be too young. No, I don't, I don't, no, I haven't. But, of course, I know all the actors that you're just talking about because I watched other other things I mean um of course French and Saunders and and that type of thing but also um absolutely as a child and probably shouldn't have been watching it but addicted to the young ones like on repeat there was a point where my mum was like okay we need to stop watching this now because I think you're turning into Vivian my attitude is I don't know why you've taken on Vivian but this is what's happening so we're gonna put that VHS away for a minute and you're gonna go and watch something yeah I would probably have done the same with my daughter (laughs) but yeah so how much fun was that oh it was an incredible time because when we did those comic strips they were one hour films for channel four and Peter Richardson wrote and directed them and it was sort of anarchic filmmaking in a way. And we we had the most incredible time. And no one was, I mean, the young ones were really groundbreaking. And so were the comic strips. They, they just did stuff no one had ever done before. Mm. And so it was incredible fun. And we were all really young. 
pretty, not hugely experienced, but we got through these huge makeups and character things and we had amazing actors coming in and it was really good fun. It was it was very different and exhausting and but great really great that's so awesome I felt very lucky to have been part of that actually and yeah. we're still I'm still very good friends with Dawn and Jen and Aid and I did 300 years of French and Saunders a couple of Christmases ago it was their Christmas special it was the last one they did so uh, last year. and I I did Dawn on it we had a ridiculous time it's just brilliant. oh so much fun brilliant yeah it's so great to have made those relationships and ah just they're very strong relationships those because we've been friends now for 35 years or something more yeah and and we've maintained those friendships and there's something fantastic about that and also Tracy I saw Tracy in LA when I was there recently and you know it's just great to have a history such a long history of people Absolutely. I met Tracy very briefly on Mrs. America. I just went up to Toronto for a couple of weeks to help out and it was while she was there. Yeah. And God, I loved watching her on that. It's oh, yeah. she's so good. She's so good. She's brilliant. I know. She's yeah. very, very clever. She's pretty great. Pretty fantastic girl. So you've also been a personal for quite a few actors like Michelle Pfeiffer, yeah. Melanie Griffith, Ben Stiller. What does being a personal mean to you? Like what do you think artists should remember when they're in that position? Well, it means lots of different things. It means you're going in with a major act. It has to be a major actor to have the sort of control over who does their makeup to that extent Mm -hmm. that they can have their own makeup artist so I think first of all I go in and you have to remember you're you're becoming part of a film that somebody else is designing so Mm -hmm. it's very for me it's very important to approach the designer and see what they need or what they want or how they want everybody to look so that whatever I create is in that world with them otherwise is it would look ridiculous if you have an actor who's looking completely different to the rest of the film. Mm. And, I mean, we're all there to tell a story and that story needs to have some coherence. So that's the first thing you have to remember. And it's not as specific as saying, well, I'd like Michelle to wear blue eyeshadow and coral lipstick. It's not that mm. at all. It's, it's just staying in that world. So for instance, I just did Emma Thompson. I was working with Emma Thompson doing her hair and makeup for Cruella. Okay. which Nadia wow. Stacey was designing, who did the favourite. And mm. I, and so I called her, you know, to say hello and what was she thinking. And she sent me a load of reference that the director had for Emma, which was great because she wasn't saying do this, but she was giving me a world that I could design in. And some of it I did do, actually, because her reference was phenomenally good. Awesome. But from that, I could start doing my own reference and pulling up images, but all of that I ran by Nadia before I started working on them because they were quite out there. Mm. The looks I did on Emma were quite extreme. And so I wanted to make sure that that worked and she was fine with that and she was great and she really let me run with it all. Although I'd sort of out of respect passed my stuff by her, made sure she was happy and also obviously the director. Mm. And so, and that's, how it was with that and that's that's the design process and that's I think is very important to remember and then the next thing is you know you're there also because the actor feels confident in your work and feels supported by you so it's very important to maintain that and really maintain 
not just the makeup and hair being as great as you possibly can do it for them, as it would be for anything you're doing, but also to mm. support them and be there and emotionally support them if necessary, if it's a difficult role or hang out with them, whatever it is. Mm-hmm. And because you're only looking after them, you have, you know, all this time. So you can really take care of them properly. You can really do everything you need to do. And so the last thing that is important is that you really like that actor that you're the person of. <laughs> yeah. Because that was terrible grammar. Because you're spending all your time with them. And, you know, and so you need to like them a lot. You need to respect what they're doing. And then it, it's an absolute joy to support mm. an actor that you think is so fantastic. I, I just love Emma Thompson. Mm-hmm. And I'm so thrilled to work with her. She's such good fun and she takes it hair and makeup very seriously. And all the actors I've been personal to over the years, I've been unbelievably fond of and maintained a friendship with. I'm very friendly with Michelle still and Ben and all that lot. And I yeah. love working with them and they feel safe. And that's that's what you really need to do with actors is to make sure that they feel safe and that they feel that they look right for the character they're portraying. And that's what it's like. Yeah. yeah. I couldn't agree more with being fond of the person that you're looking after. I mean, you don't want to be spending that many hours with somebody. No, your mental health, it's a, you know, it's, it's a joy to go into work every day. Cause you're just like, Oh, I love oh, it's working great. with this person. And, this is amazing. Yeah. yeah. And, and also you have a relationship which is based on mutual respect because they mm-hmm. feel the same way about you and so you have a great rapport I love actors and I love being part of their process of creating characters yeah. so it's great when you have an actor who are great actors yeah and they request you it's very flattering and I, I just feel very happy about that yeah and, but I don't do it that often because and often I say no even if I really love them because I like to design an entire job but I like to mix it up yeah I like to design a whole film and for instance when I did Emma on Cruella we just wrapped 1917 which was a massive job and incredibly rewarding in every possible way creatively emotionally you know it was just amazing and but I was a bit knackered Mm. and then Emma said would I do her and I Definitely. It's it's great to design a massive movie and then do a film where you're just doing one person and so you're not necessarily on every day. So I said, sure, but when I said that, I hadn't read the script and I didn't realise she had 27 different looks. Oh! (laughs) In fact, it was quite a big deal, but so enjoyable. It was good. It couldn't have been more different. Oh, my goodness. Different. Different ends of the spectrum, my goodness. Yeah. Yeah, so, but it was good. <laughs> but it's so great to have that variety, as you say, like going from designing into personal, like it just keeps it interesting, yeah. doesn't it? It really does, yeah. And but I like to mix up. I like to do big films. I like to do very small films. I'd just done a Sally Potter film just before 1917, which mm-hmm. the budget of that was smaller than my makeup budget in 1917, I think. Wow. <laughs> but, but it was very intense and and, you know, 
cerebral. And so it was very different. And then I also do theatre. And so I really mix it up in that way too. That's amazing. So I, I feel like you're definitely in a time in your career where you can afford to kind of pick and choose what you'd like to do. Like things that sing out to you, I suppose, more so than, oh, I need to take this job. It's more like, oh, that creatively sounds amazing. Or I love working with that cast. Yes, that sounds amazing. So that must be nice to be able to. Yes, it's fantastic. Yeah. It it doesn't always work out though, because sometimes you take a job and you think, oh, this is great. So exciting. And then it it falls apart or it suddenly disappears or crack, you know, whatever. Mm. And so there you're left with this huge gap when you thought you were shooting for six months and you know that happens occasionally and then sometimes you do take something that maybe you're not you don't desperately want to do Mm. but that that doesn't happen so much anymore it's true it's true it's I do tend to be really excited about what I'm taking on have a reason to take on the jobs that I do it's either an emotional connection or creative connection or or so many different reasons that you take a job on there. That's very cool. So just going back and how you did the, the first Bond film with Timothy, how quickly did things change for you after that? Immediately. Immediately I'd done that film. I suddenly got offered big feature films in the UK. And it was a difficult time for us because a lot of us left the BBC at that point. And it sort of started a big wave of us leaving and going freelance. And we all were trained to do hair and makeup together. And in film, it was two separate jobs in the UK at that time. But the producers loved that we did hair and makeup because, well, first of all, they thought they were saving money, but they weren't really because you still have to employ the same amount of people. Yeah. Whether you're doing (laughs) two jobs or one. But, But creatively... The directors liked it, that they had one person designing everything from the neck up. But Mm -hmm. it was a big problem because the unions didn't like it. And the unions were much stronger then. And the hairdressers were going berserk and they're desperately trying to stop us working. It was a difficult time. But they didn't succeed because they weren't quite... It's not like the US where the unions have really are powerful. And I'm in all the unions in the the States. and, And I can understand it. There's no way in the States you could do hair and makeup. You had to make a choice. And Mm -hmm. so I chose makeup when I lived there. But here, things changed quite rapidly. So after I finished Bond, I got offered lots of work. And I bought all my guys. A lot of my friends who had left the BBC came and worked. And Norma Webb, who I was not just at the BBC with, but also at college with, Mm -hmm. came and worked with me and is still working with me today. Yeah, that's so amazing. I love those relationships. Yeah, very strong relationship and very fantastic working relationship and also one of my best friends. So definitely one of my oldest friends. That's so great. Yeah. I I had no idea. I don't know why I didn't know that about the UK, that the hair and makeup was separated. I didn't realise that. Because it changed after we all left the Beeb. It changed quite rapidly. Right. you know, it's it's still around. It's still that you still get films that are split. Batman's separate hair and makeup. It tends to be the really, really big films. Yeah. Sometimes you have separate hair and makeup. Yeah. But it's very rare I do that now. It's nice on yeah. this because I'm working with a friend who's designing the hair. So that's great. 
that's awesome. Sorry, sorry to hear, but you know, usually I, I would do prefer to do both. Yeah, I mean, I, I'm from New Zealand, so I came up doing both, and then moved to Los Angeles, and was like, yeah. "Well, you have to make a decision." And I was like, ah. "Yeah." that's hard isn't it it's like do I have to make a decision (laughs) it's like well yeah if you want to get into the union and work on anything with a budget um yeah so yeah Yeah. it was very tricky and I went with hair because it was what I did straight out of high school Mm. and I was told by multiple people that I would get more work as a hairstylist than a makeup artist so but you probably do because there are less good hairstylists than good makeup artists I think yeah I mean in the UK apparently Mm. that's the profession that we're going to be short of in the years to come because production is so big in the UK now I mean hopefully it will stay that way and they're worried about running out of crew they're really worried about it because there's so much going on do you not have a lot of trainees coming up at the moment yeah we do we have have a lot of trainees but You know, I think hair, people who are really well trained in hair, Mm. it's hard to find that. And, Mm. you know, trainees, we're very hot on. I've done a lot of work with trainees lately. But it's hard. Somehow the makeup part of it is easier for them to get the training in than the the hair stuff isn't. And so, you know, I have trainees that I'm sending off to do cutting courses and wig dressing. And it's very hard to get that experience for them, particularly wigs. So I'm always telling them to go and get into a wig department in the theatre because that's really great with training yeah I've noticed the same thing in Los Angeles and there seems to be a lot of hairstylists who have come up working through Disney like Disneyland yeah and there's so much wig work there even though they're a different different type of wig they're yeah, not it's a different like, it's a different skill obviously yeah, yeah not necessarily human hair and you know thicker lace and yeah. all that kind of stuff but they still get a really great foundation of yeah. you know everything from blocking it to styling it to putting it on and all that type of stuff and yeah, it's, plus you get a feel for it you get a feel for wigs when you're holding and handling them all yeah. the time and um unless you go and get that type of experience it's very very hard you have to go into crowd rooms on big period films and just keep working there until you feel confident and at the Beeb we were lucky we had wig you know even at the London College of Fashion we had we had very extensive wig lessons and at the Beeb it carried on so it it's just that's how we got our training and it's very hard now but we we do train people when they're in our department we're giving lessons all the time yeah to try and get them up to speed but sometimes there isn't the time to really no. devote to your trainees you just have to somehow help them out during that time plus different films focus on different things so you know 1917 we had loads of people it was a perfect place for them to practice barbering because Mm -hmm. we had literally thousands of soldiers and I didn't want them to have very good haircuts because they didn't and because those barbers were going through hundreds I mean actually in the war we're going through hundreds of soldiers at a time with Mm -hmm. hand clippers which don't give you the finish that electric clippers do. Mm. Plus, they weren't that bothered how great their haircuts were. They just wanted to get their hair off. So that was the perfect place for people to practice their barbering because I wanted them to look bad. (laughs) (laughs) So I could chuck all the trainees in and we could give them barbering lessons and not worry too much about the outcome. That's brilliant. (laughs) And it's the repetition too, isn't it, I find? It's just like you really need to just do things over and over again. That's why I'm thankful that I had that time in the salon to just have client Mm -hmm. after client after client of just doing it for 
That's exactly years old. <laughs> yeah. So tell me about some of these films that you've worked on because they're pretty exciting when I'm looking at your IMDb. Now, films like Zoolander and the Royal Tenenbaums and how how are things like this to work on? I imagine I'm going to just say fun. (laughs) Actually, well, they're tough because you have a a huge, well, Zoolander, Mm. it's the first time I ever met Ben. So I just came off a chocolat in France. I was living in New York and I flew out to meet Ben. I'd done a bit of research and he likes to see stuff. So I didn't know that. I just happened to have done quite a lot of tear sheets and fashion stuff and was getting some ideas together. And and I met him and we met at some special effects place in the valley. And I literally, I flew there from New York and landed and went straight to see Ben bit knackered because I just landed from France recently, mm. like a couple of days before. And I walked in to see Ben and I just loved him. The minute I met him, mm. I just loved him. So I had a big connection with him. So it was fun. And he was very demanding in a good way, demanding, mm-hmm. because he'd been working on this for so long. He knew exactly what he wanted. He knew what Derek should look like. And again, I wasn't doing hair. Alan D'Angerio was doing hair. Mm-hmm. Uh, I was just doing makeup, but that was great because there was so much makeup. And Alan's very good at his really, he was at his peak when we did Zoolander. He designed that whole Zoolander hair and everything. It was oh, really good. And the thing about, and, and we had, I mean, we were crying with laughter designing all that stuff. And then you had Will Farrell and all these people who you've cried with laughter with anyway, but he looked <laughs> ridiculous. <laughs> he absolutely and, and that so Alan decided to bleach his hair rather than use a wig so we'd have to he'd have to bleach I and mean, he burnt his, his scalp he's got darkish hair and oh, mm. he bleached up to anyway it's hysterical and then we had to make do things like make a matching beard and moustache for his poodle a little wig for the poodle to match the hair uh. and so that was all fine but then Ben would go out at night after we wrap and go to a club and invite all the A-listers to come be in the film. So the next morning, all these people would stagger in, like Paris Hilton and God knows who, George <laughs> Michael. They just would stagger in. They'd been out all night and just come in. And we would I just stand at my chair making up people. I had no idea who was coming in. I never could get to set. And I was looking after Ben as well. And they would just come pouring in night after day after day, all these people. And so it was quite exhausting, Zoolander. But yeah. yes, it was really good fun because there were some amazing people in it, Justin Thoreau and and some amazing looks to create. Like that evil DJ was hysterical. Yeah, and just so trend. last minute, as you say. Like and pretty yeah, I mean, he'd come in for a test and I go, What are you thinking? And he'd give me all his reference and a bit of a gold tooth and blah, blah, blah. I don't know if I actually slammed on some gold leaf or if I made him a gold tooth, I can't remember now. But it, <laughs> and Justin was so great. The, the actors were so lovely. And Ben's wife was in it, so it was all really nice. It was really a very memorable shoot. That's very cool. <laughs> and the Royal Tenenbaums, I went to see, you know, I got off of the Royal Tenenbaums and then I went to meet Wes Anderson, the director. Mm. And I went around to his flat and he'd drawn all of the characters. He'd done like a line drawing of each character. Oh, wow. And 
he said, this is how I want them all to look. And I said, do you want them to look exactly like this? I mean, it's literally one a line drawing. Mm. And then he went, yes. And I said, okay. So I went off. And in fact, I did design the hair on that because they didn't have a hairdresser on at that point and everybody needed a wig. So I got all the wigs made at Peter Owens, mm-hmm. where I always go for my wigs. Beautiful. And, and, uh, and that's how it worked. I just really... I got given a drawing and I just reproduced it on the people. And even things like Gwyneth's eye makeup, she mm. had black eyes in that. She had black eyes as an adult, black smudgy, smoky eyes. Yeah. And the same as a child. She had the same eye makeup on. She always had it on. Yeah. And I can't remember if that was me or, or if that was Wes designing that, but it was, it was probably Wes because everything on that screen, he designs the sets. Wow. The costumes, everything. And so it definitely has a vision. Yeah, and that makeup on Gwyneth was a coal stick that I bought in Queens at the Indian market. And literally, it's like a pointy grease stick. Mm-hmm. And I would just slam it on and then I'd make her rub her eyes ah. and put on a bit of lip balm. And that was it. That was her makeup. She had no foundation, no nothing. Because wow. she had this flawless skin. Yeah. And probably still does. And, um, mm. And that was her makeup. And that's one of the biggest makeups I've ever done that people have commented on or copied. Or after that, everyone had black, smoky black eyes. And and really, it was just a bit of old grease stick from Queens. That's brilliant. (laughs) (laughs) I love that. Now, Cinderella looked like it must have been fun. Yes, that was fantastic because... Beautiful, pretty, amazing. Oh, yeah. Yeah, it was. And um, Sandy Powell was doing the costumes and I mm-hmm. had worked with Sandy since we did a comic strip oh like, wow the years before we're, mm-hmm. we're both, we both started at the same time and we met on a comic strip and we'd never met we hadn't met since and Carol Hemming was doing the hair mm-hmm. and and we all had this idea all at the same time which was to make Cinderella look like a film that had been made in the 40s a period film because in the 40s well in those days, whatever period you're in, the hair and makeup reflected the period in which it was shot. So you've got Gone with the Wind, yeah, which, which had a very, was it 40s, Gone with the Wind, it must have been, makeup. The makeup was all classic 40s and the hair was mm. sort of Victorian-y with a bit of a 40s feel. So we all said, why don't we do it as if we shot this in the 40s and really give it some a real look? And Kenneth Branagh, the director, went for it and that's what we did. So Sandy went really bright and really forties, and so did we. And Carol was doing sort of ringlets with a forties feel, and I just did straight forties makeups, but in very bright colours. And I did yeah. that on everyone. And the crowd was—we had a very big crowd, and we did that on everyone. We made them all up weeks before we shot them. We did makeup tests on five hundred crowd. I was very specific about them all, and so we got them right. And that was the look of the film and it was very specific and it was really exciting to do. It was just because Carol Hemming, who did the hair, is absolutely a phenomenal hairdresser. Mm-hmm. She's really in a, in a league on her own and and we work very well together with friends and we work very well together and it was very exciting actually doing all of that. So did I just hear you correctly and say that you were able to like individually design each background? Yeah, we did. We did wow. that. And and we we did that also on Spectre where we had fifteen hundred background. Wow. 
Yeah, well, you do because it's a real luxury that you can yeah. get on a, ma- a major, huge budget movie. But everyone that came in for costume fittings had hair and makeup fittings. So, and we did it for real. I do that in most of my films, actually. And that yeah, one, brilliant. so we set the makeups and the hair was done. And then I would see them all. I'd either get, if we were on location, which we weren't, we're always in the studio, I'd see mm. absolutely everybody and give notes. And I'm very specific. I tend to work with the same people who are very aware of what I like to see. So, and they know, they just know me really well. So we churned out all these extras in fittings. And so on the, it just makes it go really fast on the day because all the makeups and hair, it's all charted. Any specific makeup they have is all put in a bag with their charts so that when they come in on the day, they have their bags, they have their makeup and off they go to the makeup artist. And there's no wondering what's going on. What shall mm. I do? It's photographed and you, it's done. And that's what you do. And so it makes the day go really quickly. The, the call, crowd call goes really fast and you get what you want as well. Yeah. <laughs> very exciting. And often I go and work in with the crowd when you've got big crowd calls. I like to go and work with them. Absolutely. Oh. It's, it's just, I just love working with all those makeup artists. It makes me really happy. Oh, that's so nice to hear. That's awesome. I just love that. I'm so glad that it's still happening, that production haven't taken that time away from you. <laughs> well, the fitting time. Yeah, yeah exactly. Because I think no, it it's just... Uh, yeah. When we did the opening sequence of Spectre and we had 1,500 extras in Day of the Dead makeup and we had dance troops in very specific makeups and Nikita Ray was, she was in charge of the crowd and they were in Mexico City doing fittings. We were at Pinewood shooting main team. And I'd sent her off with a Bible of reference. And we talked and talked and we'd done tests before she went. So she knew sort of what we were after. And then I didn't want to use, I didn't want to take a huge amount of makeup artists from the UK. We sent five just because I knew them and that I knew that they could be in charge of teams and, and sort of get what I wanted. And then we had Mexican makeup artists who were phenomenally good. I mean, amazingly good. And then we had street painters who were sort of just painting faces. And then we had body painters and we had airbrush people. And then we had people who were just good at art that wanted to have a go because I wanted to mix it up. I didn't want it all looking flawless like makeup mm. artists that just attacked this crowd and they prepped prepped that for six weeks it took them six weeks and they wow. made up every single person and every day at Pinewood at the end of the day my phone would start exploding with whatsapp pictures of all the fittings yeah yeah and I looked at every single makeup 1500 makeups I looked at during those six weeks and gave notes if necessary but it wasn't really necessary because they nailed it really fast Oh, that's so brilliant. And then to see it all come together when you shoot it. Ah. I know. It's like, and then when I went out there and saw the setup, we had a setup because there were 150 makeup artists and 150 hairdressers. So there were 300 people in the stadium with makeup stations. And I walked in there and I walked in at four in the morning because I, I went to work with them. I was really bad. My work was just appalling because they've been doing it for six weeks and I came in cold. It's terrible what I did. Gobsmacking me bad. And, but I was so overwhelmed at these people who were giving it their all, these makeup artists. 
were just so committed to this. And we churned out that crowd in two hours. 1,500 oh, people in two hours. It was amazing. Wow. There must it's be something on a record for that. <laughs> one of the great moments of my career. <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah. Now, you've worked with beauty brands, right, to develop special edition lines and stuff that kind of coincide with the films that you've done? Bond always have sort of marketing link-ups with various people, and they're approached by OPI to do a nail colour for Skyfall. And Berenice Marlowe, who was one of the Bond girls, we gave her these incredible nails and her hands were very featured in the film. So we gave her these really sculptured, beautiful nails and I designed a colour called Skyfall with OPI that reflected the colours in the casino, really. It was a deep brownie red that I looked at all the colours and the colour swatches for the, for the set mm-hmm. and I took it from that and then I gold leafed the back of her nails because they were oh, so wow. long. I don't know if they were read on film, but we gold leafed the back and we painted the front. And and then they brought out this, the nail colour commercially called Skyfall. And it, and it was great. It was a great colour. I still use it, actually. Oh, that's so exciting. It's fun. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> I love how you're going in and, like, figuring out what the colours of the set are and all of that type of stuff to incorporate yeah. it. Like, that's a beautiful design work. I love it. Thank you. So I guess that goes into research, doesn't it? I was going to ask you how important do you think it is to spend time researching? It's hugely important. And more over the last few years, actually. I don't, I suppose, because the projects I've been doing. But I do a huge, huge amount of research. Mm-hmm. And... Because often you have to because they're historical, but even things like Cinderella where it wasn't based on any particular, where it's based on the sort of 40s feel. I still did a ton of research, really a ton, just to get ideas. You get so many ideas from just looking through stuff. And all the time I've got a very big library at home of books that I use for reference. Mm -hmm. And I've collected over the years and I just always buy or I see someone else's if I'm at work and I'll buy those or, you know, I just keep buying books. But, and obviously now most of the research you can do online is pretty good. You can do anything online, really. There's everything there. Yeah. I still find myself going back to books though. Yeah. I just, I love, I love flipping through all my books. I just, mm-hmm. I pull out all the books I think might be relevant and then, and then go through them all. And, you know, obviously every time you do a film, you've got another 20 of books. So, <laughs> I've run out of bookshelves but, keeps growing and growing yeah but I know I like to do books I like to go to galleries I go to museums I go in 1917 we, we were at the Imperial War Museum mm-hmm. a lot of the time and grabbing documentary footage I bought loads of documentaries and in fact we ran them when we were getting the crowd ready I asked production to put TV screens up in the crowd room and we ran documentary footage all the time on a loop. It was for two reasons. Firstly, so that the makeup artists could look up at any time if they got stuck for an idea and for these haircuts and look up and see someone immediately. As well as, you know, in that in that crowd room, we had thousands of pictures on all thousands. It was really useful having running the documentaries because they're real people moving. And it also helped the um, supporting actors because they could look at the soldiers that they were portraying all the time they were up there and it really was helpful really helpful yeah 
just helps people get into that groove, doesn't yeah, it? Yeah, it really does. Yeah. That's awesome. I was going to talk to you briefly about the continuity situation on 1917 as well, because yeah. I imagine that was, I mean, wow. <laughs> <laughs> It wasn't as bad. I you know people always ask me that question. And, um, it wasn't as difficult as it would appear to be because we shot mostly in sequence. Okay. And we had a massive amount of prep time. We had as much prep time as, we, as it took to shoot the film. I think we had 16 weeks of prep. I had 16 weeks of prep. Yeah. And we shot over 15 weeks. But the prep was so incredibly well organized by the production it was an incredibly collaborative crew we all were working at it at Shepperton and all our, everyone had open doors and we were all in and out of each other's departments in it was the most collaborative and happy experience I've ever had on a film wow because of the nature of the film everything overlapped so I worked a lot with set dressing because we had we had barbed wire fences in no man's land. We had bodies hanging off them. And then and because the shots were so well designed months ahead of when we ever shot them, Sam could go, well, we're taking the camera through no man's land and we're passing this and that and these bodies here and those bodies there. He knew exactly how many mm. bodies we needed months before we ever had to shoot them. Wow. And then he'd go, and then we're going through some barbed wire and I want a piece of hair hanging off the barbed wire at this particular point. I mean, this is Christmas time, and we mm. didn't shoot till whenever it was, April. And um, that's how detailed our knowledge was. We were involved in all the blocking rehearsals. We knew what was going on. and So continuity wasn't so bad because I knew what every shot was. We knew where ahead of time where the fades were, where the blends were, I mean, where each shot blended into another. Mm -hmm. And... We had a lot of equipment to help us. So, you know, apart from our usual continuity photos, hmm. we had huge screens that everyone was watching so that we had the image up that we were matching to always. So oh, wow. it, it was right. we're in very high quality. Yeah. And we had everyone watching. We had very, very conscientious script supervisor. And, and I had Rebecca Cole, who was doing, who was doing George Mackay, Mm -hmm. who's the lead yeah is completely anal and <laughs> brilliant <laughs> she is beyond anal she yeah. knows I say this about her and that's why she got that job because yeah. I knew that, that not one fleck of dirt was going to be mm. wrong in the wrong place and George was the hardest and because we were in sequence we knew what was going to happen to them we uh, things happened in real time and we kept it and because it was one shot. So you're shooting mm. them, you're going through no man's land, falling over, getting covered in mud. That was the shot. Yeah. And we had usually had three shots that Sam would like, and we could match all of those together. But it, it wasn't that hard. The only hard thing, did you, I don't know if you saw the film or not. Yeah, no, absolutely. But there's a sequence, there's a scene where George Mackay gets mm. buried in chalk. Mm. Where they're in the German bunker, there's an explosion. And there's a lot of chalk dust and he's completely buried. And that yeah. was our weather cover. So that was the only shot that was weather cover that was out of sequence. And it was the shot that had the most effect on how he was going to look. Yeah. And from that, 
before we ever shot that sequence, we had them coming out of that bunker oh. into the air, and that we hadn't shot the sequence. So that was a ch- very challenging moment for us. But what happened was, because everyone was so prepped, we prepped mm. it by recreating. We went into the set in the studio where they built the set, and we did mm. the explosion, and we buried George for real. And then we pulled him out and we photographed the end result. So we knew exactly what was going to happen. And you don't always get that opportunity. but because oh, absolutely not. So wow. Prepared, yeah. We could do it. So we photographed that. And we had that as a reference for him for coming out of the scene months before we ever shot the explosion in the bunker. Yeah. So, you know, oh. that's, that's what happens when you have a director who knows what they want and also a very collaborative crew. It's yeah, it's a beautiful great. thing. Yeah, it really is. That's amazing. So throughout your career, I imagine you've worked in a few locations around the world. Let me ask you, do you have any favourites? Well, I suppose, I mean, all the major cities, Rome, Paris and all of that. Lot, but I, I, I love Mexico. I just love working in Mexico. And we shot a Bond film. We based it out of Cherubusco, which are the studios in Mexico City. I don't think they're there anymore. Mm. And... I just love it in Mexico. I love the colours of the people and the art and the buildings, and and I love that. And I also love Morocco. Oh, nice. I love shooting in Morocco. just love mm-hmm. it. I just think it's the most beautiful place. Again, great people, the smells. It's dead sexy in Morocco. <laughs> but, you know, I've also, I also love the highlands. And, but really, I suppose those are my favourites of all. Yeah. And what has been um, one of the more challenging locations you've shot in? Well, I think going through no man's land and Mm. going through these massive craters filled with water and working in that mud for quite a long period of time, that was challenging. I think that was probably one of the most challenging locations. But I I also think we shot Spectre in the desert in Morocco. It was something like uh, 42 degrees. It was incredibly hot. That was difficult. The pouring of the sweat. It's any location that has extreme weather conditions that affects the actor and how they look and that you have to maintain them and fight that all the time. Yeah. I think heat is worse than cold for that. So, you know, really extreme desert conditions are very challenging, I think. Absolutely. And for all your products and everything as well, I would imagine. I mean, hot or cold, it's kind of like... You just can't win. (laughs) So what is your approach when it comes to caring for your cast's skin? Like, especially if you're on a six month job and there's someone that's coming in every day. I I like to take, really take care of their skin because I don't like to put a lot of makeup on people. So particularly men. So we give them very regular facials. We cleanse them really thoroughly at the end of the day. We have hot towel machines. We do really good cleansing. We have products, masks. I spend We spend a lot, a lot of time taking care of actors' skin. Yeah. We really do. I think that's a good way to look at it is that you're doing it for the reason of not wanting to have to cover their skin, that you want to yeah. have their skin come through. Yeah. And not put so much makeup on. I think. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah, absolutely. I did want to ask you when you're putting a team together, what are you looking for in people? Well, what I'm looking for is a passionate commitment to the project, really. But the people I work with, I've worked with many, many times, and and 
they all have different skills. They're all good mm-hmm. at different things. So like Rebecca is incredibly fastidious. What I also am looking for is, is a very big respect for actors. I think actors really need to be taken care of because I think to be an actor, to be a really good actor, you have to be incredibly brave and willing to expose yourself completely. Mm-hmm. And I think that takes a lot of courage. And I think we need to be there for them yeah, to take care of them, both emotionally and physically, or just even just physically take care of them, gives them that security of being able to go out and do their job. And, and so that's why I'm looking for that type of commitment and respect for actors as a profession, because lots of people don't respect actors enough, I think. And I think it's really important. But, you know, and also I want them, obviously, to be as well-trained as they possibly can be mm-hmm. and fun and nice and kind yeah, and all of those things because it sort of gets a bit wild in my makeup bath sometimes. <laughs> and so it's sort of in a good way. Yeah, <laughs> I was going to say. They need to, be able, <laughs> they need to be able to sort of go with that flow and they do. They're really great and they're very loyal to me. I suppose loyalty to me isn't something that I look for mm. because that takes time to build and it's not something I, I demand but I just find that people are so so supportive of me and that's why I suppose I use the same people over and over again because we're really like a family and we support each other I love my crew they're very very important to me and they really are like a family truly are and and I just miss them when I don't see them if we have breaks or anything I really miss them and but I also do have new people coming in all the time and, hmm. you know, I'm always looking for makeup artists. I'm desperately trying to increase diversity within the makeup department on feature films, desperately trying to make it more diverse. That's awesome. So I'm really trying to deal with that as well at the trainee level. So if I'm lecturing, sometimes I do talks hmm. or I do some training things and I'm always demanding that the people I'm I'm addressing have there has to be diversity in every way. That's brilliant. So hopefully we'll get better at that. Yeah, I love it. We'll make sure we get better at that. Yeah, I agree. So now because we are always learning in our line of work, what is something that you've learned recently that you thought was exciting or just plain helpful? That's a bit of a question. <laughs> um, well, I'll tell you what though. I work with various prosthetic people. I've worked with Tristan Vest Luis a lot on 1917 and on Batman, but mm-hmm. but I'm also I also work with Mike Marino from New York and mm-hmm. I'm always learning stuff from him. And I don't know what right now, but he's so out there. He's so brilliant that he's always coming up with stuff. But you know, you can't be good at everything. This is what I is to accept the fact that you cannot be good at every single thing within your craft. Like mm-hmm. I am not going to be as good as at prosthetics as Mike Marino or Tristan, or because I don't do it all the time. I'm good at different things, but it's okay to not be good at everything. Okay, I understand what you're saying. A lot of designers or heads of departments will bring people in for specific jobs. I mean, you can't do everything, even though you could actually do it, but physically with time and scheduling and it's just not possible. So, Mm -hmm. yeah, 
I completely it's, understand what you're yeah, saying. It's true. And you can't be. And when we did Synexiki New York, Charlie Kaufman's film, we had to have a full body tattoo and I wanted it hand painted. I went to a tattoo guy and then he designed it and made all the transfers. And then I brought in artists to actually paint it. It took two days to paint this body. But I wanted a particular painterly effect. And I knew that I wouldn't be as good at, at that as an artist a fine artist would be and that's who we yeah. were bringing in as fine artists so it's that it's just knowing it's not having limitations but not mm-hmm. having limitations and accepting that you need other people to help you fulfill that I yeah. think that's something I've learned yeah that's awesome now what one tool or product would you never want to work without that's such a hard question I know and nobody can give me one answer so don't worry yeah. <laughs> Because there isn't really ever going to be an answer to that question. Because if you don't have the product you can't work without, mm. you're going to find a way to use some other product to make it work. Well, that's a good answer. So there we are. And I think that's what artists have to do all the time. So you've got to make yeah. it work. It is. It's, it is what we have to do. And it's not an excuse of I don't have that. It's no. figure it's it like, out. <laughs> yeah, it's all you're on set and you've forgotten the one thing you need. You know? Yeah. And so you have to fish around in your set bag to find something else that will do that, you know, or quickly mix the colour or do something because there's always a way. That's what I think. I agree. That's an awesome answer. <laughs> and who would you like to hear on the podcast? I think I'd like to hear Mike Marino on the podcast. I agree, actually. Yeah. That's, yeah. Not only because he's, he's a phenomenal prosthetic makeup artist, he's also a phenomenal artist and he's mm-hmm. a great personality and dead cute. <laughs> Just saying. <laughs> well, thank you, Naomi. What a fantastic time I've had getting to know you. Well, it's been a pleasure. It's been lovely chatting to you. For links to see more about our guests, go to our Instagram at The Last Looks Podcast or our website, thelastlookspodcast.com. If you want to keep up with new episodes being released, be sure to subscribe through Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Amazon, Google Play, YouTube, or any podcast streaming platform. And remember, if you're enjoying the show, share it. The Last Looks Podcast would like to thank Brett Stanley and Sabrina Castro. The song Fun Time by DJ Quads. Thanks for listening. Until next time. That's a wrap, people.